Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The death toll in the huge gas pipeline explosion in the Mexican state of Hidalgo is now up to 96 people. The incident reveals the complicated issue of gas theft in Mexico to a wider audience. There are some eye-popping numbers. In the last three years, the government estimates $7.4 billion worth of gas has been stolen. Since December, 32,000 Mexican troops have been guarding pipelines. With me is Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy. She's in Mexico City. Thanks for joining us again, Laura. Thank you, Jerome. I think a lot of people were unaware that there was this kind of gas theft going on in Mexico. Um, How did we get here? Well, even in Mexico, I think people have been shocked at the dimensions, although there has been an effort to keep track and to, to keep statistics about how much gas is being stolen. What's happened, there was recently an interesting graph that came out, Jerome. It showed that basically in about 2007, the amount of gas that was being stolen directly from the national gas company, Pemex, began to rise precipitously. And in the late, later years, it was, it was going up tremendously year by year. That year marked the beginning of the war on drugs. And what we began to see is that organized crime, instead of getting weaker, as the war on drugs was launched, began to get stronger and began to diversify into other businesses. Because this is really a business organization, an illegal business organization, much more than, you know, a military enemy or anything else that they that they often try to portray it as. And that's when we began to see the fuel theft becoming a major part of their income. The government would talk about it occasionally, and uh, there were army troops that were supposedly guarding. But the problem of corruption was so deeply ingrained in the entire system from people who worked in Pemex, so they knew when and where they could tap the fuel lines, from politicians who protected and took their cut from this huge business, as you said, $7.4 billion dollars to high-up politicians who allowed it to continue. Uh, When you talk about organized crime like that and and the dimensions of this issue, I I mean, it seems like a different thing than 900 people gathered around an oil pipeline trying to get some open gas. Uh, How did they intersect? It's totally different. I mean, we have to remember, in this case, what happened apparently, and there's still some, uh, there's some, questions about exactly what happened was that there was a puncture and this gas geyser came out. And so it was really people from the community who, uh, it's a very poor community who rushed in to just capture the gas that was flowing out of this pipeline. It's much different than the professional jobs of tapping pipelines uh, that caused the, the, the major part of the losses. So the people who have been killed are mostly local people who did not necessarily 
they weren't armed. There's no evidence that they had uh, major links to organized crime. Those are the people who are dead in this case with another 48 in the hospital. Now, I've seen people complaining about prices in some of the uh, video around the incident. Is the, is the organized crime issue driving up prices for everybody and creating black markets and, and uh, juicing up the black market, essentially? Yes, definitely. And that's closely linked to what the, what the government of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has noted, uh, and which is the reason why all these people from the local community ran in with just, you know, gallon buckets or something to get gas. And that is the poverty itself. So Mexican gas is more expensive, despite being a gas producing country, than in the United States. Um, and it's obviously a much poorer country. This has the price of gas. It's not clear to what degree the uh, black market has pushed it up. But the losses that the national gas company Pemex was sustaining and continues to sustain because of the uh, fuel theft obviously contributed to their expenses and to the price of gas itself. What the government's trying to do now is just get control of this situation. The tragedy that happened in the state of Hidalgo with this gas explosion actually underlined the need to create more security, to take control over the system, and to try to create, uh, in addition, some alternative programs to provide jobs and to provide a decent standard of living in the areas where this this gas theft takes place. Because we have to remember, too, that when you have such a massive structure of organized crime, it means that there's a lot of regular people who are employed in it. And when you shut it down, you have economic impacts that go beyond saving money because you've no longer you're no longer you know diverting these natural resources to a black market but they also have the impact of eliminating jobs and certain types of income that were very very intertwined in the legal economy I'm talking with Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy. She's in Mexico City, and we're talking about some of the complications around gas theft in Mexico. And coming up in a few minutes, we're going to discuss how to frame the issue of transgender troops in the military. Stay with us. I'm curious about um, the approach of the previous presidential administration and this one, because it seems like uh, Manuel Lopez Obrador has come in and put some troops on this, started guiding, um, uh, paying attention to this and guarding the pipelines and uh, bringing more focus on this thing. Um, but it's um, how do you how is he trying to wrap his uh, wrap his hands around this thing? Well, there was major change, although previous governments, as I mentioned, Jerome, have tried to uh, have recognized that the problem exists and have tried to confront it. And they had security forces um, around the major gas ducts. What, what Lopez Obrador did when he came into office or just shortly thereafter was uh, begin to take control over these major ma gas ducts like the one that went from Tuxpan de Tule and that had the that suffered the explosion on January 18th, and he did that by sending troops in, more troops, and by changing the form of distribution temporarily to gas trucks. 
and this caused a lack of supply in many places. It provoked uh, kind of an outcry from the public because there were days in which you could really not get gas in many parts, including here in Mexico City. But it was a major move against corruption to begin to shut down this market. So this had not been done previously, that we hadn't seen such a bold action against the corruption and to seek ways in which the state could take back control of the gas distribution in the country. Another part of the plan is since most of the gas is imported from the United States, refined gas, although, as I said, Mexico is a major gas producing country, this has been happening for years years. They're trying to restore refineries here in Mexico and begin to do more of the production locally to reduce the need for transportation um, and to, in that way, also take control of it. But it's a big break from the past in how this has been handled, and it's definitely going to cause some reactions, both in local economies that depended on fuel theft and among organized crime groups that were involved. And it sounds like the solutions are things that cost a lot of money, lots of trucks that have gases. There's talk of rebuilding pipelines. The 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 money for this, it's not clear where it's coming from, I imagine. No, it's really not clear. And there's been some criticisms because they've had to immediately purchase and rent a large number of gas trucks, which is a more expensive way of delivering gas than through those major pipelines. Uh, and there's been they've talked about savings in other areas as a way to to finance it, which has been um, you know one of the the arguments that Lopez Obrador has made for many of his programs, especially social programs. Uh, it's again probably a question of the short-term costs and the long-term savings, in which you we could see a problem in terms of financing this. They say they want to go back to the gas duct distribution to some degree. But in the meantime, these gas trucks are expensive. It's expensive to give them security as well. And it's expensive to rent and buy them and change the distribution system. And it's not exactly clear where that money will be coming from. Yeah, I imagine the security uh, for the trucks is important because uh, if you're an organized crime figure, uh, the trucks kind of help you. It, it gets the gets the gas out of the pipeline and puts it in a truck for you, and then you can somehow get it from there. You'd think so. So far, we've had uh, – th- there's been at least one report of a gas truck being kidnapped – and there's also been reports that they need a lot more drivers because there's a lot more gas trucks now, gas being distributed in that way, and that people are reluctant to sign up for the job because of the danger that it implies. Wow. I'm talking with Laura Carlson from the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy in Mexico City. We're talking about the gas issue in Mexico. And I wanted to switch gears and um, say a few things about the trial that's going on in the United States. Um, El Chapo has been having some very interesting revelations in his trial. There has been accusations that the previous president, Enrique Peña Nieto, had been taking $100 million bribes. 
And the accusations, of course, are coming from uh, an organized crime figure who's committed many crimes, and I imagine he didn't exactly see these transactions taking place. But it seems pretty sensational. But in Mexico, it sounds like it didn't land really hard. It didn't um, make big news. The current administration didn't leap to its feet. Um, How do you describe the reaction there? It's true. In Mexico, it hasn't been a headline. And here, this is absolutely major. If it were true that the president of the country received $100 million in bribes from the major cartel in not just Mexico, but in the world, that would be earth shaking. And yet it's been kind of shrugged off, I think, basically for two reasons. First, Jerome, is that people are like, yeah, of course, you know, they really expect that that happened. There was never a a major part of the population that believed the drug war was really being fought between the Mexican and U.S. governments and the cartels. They believed the situation was something much murkier and had to do with corruption on all sides and who was taking cuts from whom. And the other part is, of course, that the, the accusations at this stage are not corroborated. They're coming from individuals uh, who were deep into the drug cartel. There's no doubt about that and would have reason to see a lot of what went on, but whose testimony in this trial is based on their own interests in getting off easier and uh, maybe based on who knows what other political Uh, considerations that makes it difficult to know to what degree they're telling the truth and on what points they may be telling the truth and what other points they may be inventing it. There's a long history with these kinds of trials of witnesses that are either in the witness protection program or offered what's called S visas um, or certain incentives to bring their family to the United States or to get off easy to invent testimony. And oftentimes the prosecution even encourages this. I've been working on a report about DEA operations in Mexico and Latin America for some time now. And there's a number of cases about this. So it's hard to ever tell what's true and what's not true. But in Mexico, there's general sense that this very well could be true but that the possibility that will ever be uh, corroborated and taken to prosecution or trial in Mexico against high-level politicians is so slim that it just doesn't have the impact it should. As someone taking in the news, it's hard. There's got to be one or two conclusions you can have. One is that the ex-president of Mexico is right when he says, by the way, I extradited El Chapo. I wouldn't believe a word he's saying. I am completely innocent. Or um, all these accusations in his trial of huge, huge bribes being thrown around. You're kind of left with one or, one or the other interpretation of reality. He's innocent or there's huge bribes being thrown around. And, you know, it might, might look to people like huge bribes are being thrown around. Yeah, I think so, because the fact that that he was eventually captured and extradited is not definitive proof that there weren't, uh, in previous, uh, previous moments, arrangements made. Uh, the bribe was supposedly offered in October of 2012. He was captured in February of 2014. He miraculously escaped 
which many people believe has to do with government complicity, and then was recaptured in strange circumstances in January of 2016. So there isn't exactly a blameless, you know, chronology there in terms of the government's actions. I think that for the most part, you can say that huge bribes are being thrown around. We're not just talking about Peña Nieto. There are also accusations of 56 million in bribes going directly to his chief of public security, Garcia Luna, and a number of other uh, high-level politicians have been named as well. Now, notice that there's no U.S politicians or agents being named. And yet it's almost impossible with what they've told us about how almost all of this, the drug trafficking went across legal points of entry. It's almost impossible that there wasn't complicity from the other side. So there's a whole story that's not being told despite all the juicy details that are coming out within the trial. Very interesting. Laura Carlson is director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy. She's in Mexico City. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the El Chapo trial and the explosion of the gas pipeline in Hidalgo. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Jerome. Always a pleasure. Coming up after the break, how to frame the issue of transgender troops in the military. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that and it's Chicago based. So you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump's ban on transgender troops in the military came one step closer to realization on Tuesday. The Supreme Court put on hold some lower court injunctions on the ban, and it's likely that soon one injunction that was not part of the Supreme Court case will shortly be put on hold as well, allowing the Trump administration to enforce the ban. There was lots of coverage of the latest legal turn in the transgender troops in the military situation. And let's talk about how the issue of transgender troops in the military is typically framed with writer Yasmin Nair. She has written about the issue in Current Affairs along with Eli Massey. She did a piece yesterday, last year, called uh, Inclusion in the Atrocious, which gives you an idea about where she's coming from. Uh, nice to talk with you again, Yasmin. Hi, Jerome. Great to be back. I think whenever we think about the military and inclusion, everybody's tapstone in this country. Every Everybody goes back to 1948, and Harry Truman signed an executive order that uh, asked for equal treatment in the armed services, integrating the segregated military. And um, this was a thing that brought the rest of the country along. And typically, if you can get the military to go, go for inclusion, the rest of the country cl- comes along. How does that sit 
now today with transgender troops in the military? Mm. Well, for us, yes. Uh, inclusion is always important, but I think we always have to think about the conditions of inclusion and what the frameworks that it might bring along are. And I, when I think about inclusion in the military, I think about Dr. Martin Luther King's words about the madness of militarism and his larger critique of what inclusion of African-Americans in particular in the army during the Vietnam War, for instance, meant. It meant the weaponizing of African-American bodies. And I think we tend to forget that inclusion in the military is not about simply employment, but also about deployment, which is the deployment of bodies in the in the interest of military agendas. I was reading a CNN report the other day about trans inclusion, and they quoted one of the generals uh, saying something about, you know, ours is the most brutal force. I think he actually used that word, the most brutal force in the, in the world, and that must be protected at all costs. So I think when we talk about inclusion of trans people in particular, um, there's a tendency to ignore what the conditions of inclusion have been, but also how trans inclusion in the military tends to obscure and even erase the very real economic and political and cultural issues facing trans people today. What are some of the other issues that maybe should loom larger in people's minds than trans inclusion in the military? The most basic issues, the ones that many other marginalized communities have already dealt with in some ways, you know, things like housing, simple. Uh, it's difficult as a trans person to even get rentals. Uh, the landlord will happily let you fill in an application and as you walk out the door, tear up your application form. This has happened numerous times. So even housing is an issue, health care. And we're not just talking about transitioning matters, but simple health care, um, housing, health care, uh, just employment. There's no employment. Uh, there's often no employment to be found if you are openly and out as trans, uh, which means you have to resort to, for instance, street trade of all sorts, uh, which includes sex trade, uh, which can be dangerous and fraught if you're not doing it within more controlled environments, uh, as other sex workers might be able to. The, the, the issues face trans people are just absolutely numerous, um, and they're among the most vulnerable in the country today. I, you know, it, it sounds like so many people cover this in a way that um, doesn't talk about these things. And strictly, it, it, um, it talks about, you know, this being uh, a fight for inclusion, this is a just fight for inclusion, and we're going to, to you know, we're going to win this thing. Um, and there's a certain amount of uh, we want to win this thing against President Trump going on. There's um, uh, it's interesting to see the people you know who are quoted in the articles. Lots of the um, LGBT organizations are out there and and talking about this issue. Uh, how do you how do you read what's going on there? So what I will say first is that Trump is the worst thing that has happened to us, but not for the reasons people imagine. He's the worst thing that has happened, I think, especially to left politics, because everything now is about reacting to Trump. If Trump says X, we immediately you know gloom onto that as if this is the most important thing we have to talk about. And I think the problem here with the trans inclusion issue, which actually for Trump was sort of a flyaway kind of line, really, when he first brought it up. I think he sort of raised it and then he thought, you know, he could just keep ignoring it. It wasn't really a big issue for him um, and it's become one now, of course, over the years. But I think the big problem is that we are forgetting in always defining our politics 
in accordance with what Trump might have said, which is to say in a reactive way, we are forgetting what we on the left, and I speak proudly as someone on the left, as a queer person on the left, we tend to forget what our principles ought to be. So in terms of inclusion and Trump and how this conversation gets, uh, you know, gets pushed up, we have forgotten, for instance, that all of these issues around trans inclusion really came about because Jennifer Pritzker, one of the, you know, a billionaire, a home, a Chicago grown billionaire, made it an issue by really very forcefully bringing it up and pushing the agenda. We forget that the major gay rights organizations like Human Rights Campaign are are very much deeply indebted to military uh, corporations like Lockheed Martin which is why they've been pushing that particular agenda, for instance. So we also forget that, you know, when Jennifer Pritzker recently in the Washington Post uh, uh, wrote something like, you know, I'm being marginalized. Well, Jennifer Pritzker is not being marginalized in any way, not simply because she's a billionaire, but because not being asked, not being allowed to serve in the military is not quite the same as not being given access to basics like healthcare and housing. And I don't think that being included in the military is going to in any way automatically leads to a, lead towards a sort of greater resolution of those issues, which are impacted and compacted by much larger structural issues, like, for instance, health, the fact that in the United States, healthcare for everyone is in a terrible condition. Uh, housing is not right. We haven't even come to that understanding. How does being included in the military, which is a horrific organization, help us? Well, it's interesting. A lot of people go into the military for the benefits and the opportunity. And one of those opportunities is health care. And the gripe of the Trump administration is that they don't want to pay for the health care of uh, people going through transition. That, 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 is, that is too far to go for them. And, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's kind of a heavy irony. Right. And this is the same argument that gay rights organizations made about marriage, which is that, well, you know, we need marriage so that people can get health care through marriage. And what a lot of us, like groups against equality, like said was, why do people have to get married to gain such a basic uh, matter like health care? So, you know, the... The problem here is that we turn to the problem itself as a solution. (laughs) We turn to an unequal system which only gives basic life-saving benefits to a few who will allow the military to essentially blow their bodies to bits, for instance. We allow that system to become the reason why we should have the system in place in the first place. It's a very strange uh, contradiction. We're talking about the issue of transgender troops in the military and how to frame it with writer Nazmin Yern. She wrote the article Inclusion in the Atrocious in the in Current Affairs uh, late last year. And I wanted to contrast uh, Jennifer Pritzker a little bit, as you do in the article, um, with um, Chelsea Manning. And Chelsea Manning obviously uh, did something um, that was rebellious against the military by and uh, against the law, taking all these documents. But the treatment of Chelsea Manning is uh, she got quite a bit different treatment. Yes, she was treated horrendously by by 
all the gay organizations like HRC and also by the trans uh, organizations as well. And the rationale there was that she is a traitor. What they said about her was that she's a traitor. She is not basically not worth fighting for. She deserves what she gets. And she was really left out in the cold by the very organizations that should actually have spoken up for her if, in fact, their politics are what they claim, which is trans protection and trans inclusion in society. And that's where we saw, I think with Chelsea Manning's case, we saw very clearly that all of this talk about trans inclusion uh, in society or in the military is really about vested interests. It is not actually about protecting those who are most vulnerable. Manning, as you know, was treated horribly, uh, brutalized by a system, incarcerated, um, and they did not just not they, they didn't just keep silent. They actually came out and made statements against her and called her a traitor. What should we do and look for in continuing coverage of this? Because every legal turn gets uh, huge coverage and gets. Uh, kind of the same coverage. Right. What, what, what should we look for? Yeah, and not to make light of it, but it always strikes me, this whole thing strikes me as like a bad engagement. You know, it keeps stopping and starting. Uh, but I think as a society, as we think about the issues facing trans uh, people, and as we think about trans inclusion, I do think that, and I speak again as someone on the left, I think we have to say, yes, look, inclusion is in some ways necessary. It is, it's not just illegal, but it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's abhorrent to exclude people from institutions certainly. But on the left, we have a responsibility to ask what are the conditions of inclusion and how do that, how does that ramping up of inclusion discourse really shut out and erase all the other issues around the individuals concerned, like healthcare, like housing, uh, all of those essential needs that trans and other people have. You know, I was talking with um, Cynthia Enloe, the feminist uh, author and writer, yeah. and she's talked a lot about militarism in her career and we talked discussed the women who were the leaders in the in military industrial complex these days uh, the the head of uh, virtually every organization you can you can think is is has got a woman at the top and she said uh, well it's not nothing these women have worked their their way up they are in there um, but she she didn't think it was a lot it, she didn't think that this was necessarily Feminism. It was something. Uh, it was some kind of inclusion. It was, uh, and she's, you know, I think the rub I got from the conversation is anything can be militarized. Exactly. Any, anything can be right. militarized. It's not, and I like that. You know, the frame, uh, the, the the phrase you use. It's not feminism. And I think we also have to say yes. Well, what is feminism? What is a queer left agenda? And I would argue that all of that has to include an economic rationale. It has to include an economic critique of how systems are set up to not just exclude people, to but to actually destroy them. So when we talk about women and trans people and LGBT people in being included in the military, we are forgetting that the military industrial complex across the world now is devastating economic options for many people. Um, you know, you just had a segment right before this about Mexico and, the, and uh, the, the, the gas crisis there. But, you know, that is around and caused by the intense militarization of the world in general and what the United States has done. So we forget, I think, the sort of the long-term and congruent effects that the, the, the militarization of the world that the United States States has enabled has, you know, it has wreaked havoc upon people. And 
asking for inclusion in such a deadly and deathly enterprise is not the way for anyone, not just on the left, but I would say even on the center liberal uh, side to go. The military industrial complex is devastating to all of us. And we have to ask what it means for us to want to be included in it constantly. Yasmin Nair is an academic freelance writer and editor-at-large at Current Affairs. You can read her article, Inclusion in the Atrocious, in the March issue last year. Thanks a lot for joining us again. It's nice always talking a pleasure. With you. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about a celebration of Polish culture. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that and it's Chicago based. So you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. When events are driving people apart, the way to resist is to come together. The village of Skokie and Niles Township have made a habit of coming together. Skokie prides itself on being a welcoming community, and for the last 10 years, they've created three months of programs that feature an ethnic or religious group. This year, they're focusing and celebrating on Polish culture. And with me is Jim Szepaniak. He is uh, representing the Come Together program. He directs the community relations for Niles Township High School in District 219. Thanks a lot for joining us, Jim. Great to be here. You've been doing this all 10 years. How did this happen? So actually, the originators were five community leaders who are all very strong women. And they looked at the fact that community In Skokie, we like to talk about our diversity as if that's an accomplishment, but really it's a demographic. And they're saying, okay, that's fine, but what are we doing with this? They really wanted to celebrate reading and literacy, but also wanted to take a deeper dive into some of the many cultures that are represented. So they came up with this idea called Coming Together at the Time in Skokie, where they would choose one culture and a book, over the years selected books for different age ranges, and then have a weeks-long series of events that would spotlight that given culture. So you've whipped through nine other cultures in Skokie already? We have whipped through nine, and we have extended from Skokie, and we're totally inclusive now of Lincolnwood and Martin Grove and Niles as well. It sounds like an incredible accomplishment because you really take a deep dive is what happens here. It's three months of programming. It's a very serious effort. It is a deep dive, and one of the main goals is to reach past the culture that's being featured to everyone else to learn more about that culture. And also one of the recognitions was a lot of times these events are food and music and dance, which are great, but what about the rest of the things that really drive a country or a people? So we're looking at everything from politics to waves of immigration into Chicago this year from Polish people. So you've got a a program that talks about Poland and freedom of the press in Poland and a discussion about that. There's all sorts of things going on. All sorts of things and uh, more than 60 programs over a period of 10 weeks. 
Wow. Let's continue the discussion now with Bernadette Korigesh, and she's a digital services assistant with the Niles Main District Library and represents the Polish community. Good to see you. Thank you for having me here. Um, have you had experiences at previous coming together events? Yes. So I remember like one time I came with my daughter and we attended a Korean program. It was celebration of Hanbak. And at the time, kids were invited to the stage. They were able to wear the traditional Korean dresses. And I know you cannot see me, but I'm quite tall and my daughter is tall as well. So I could see that she was not feeling very well. She was kind of scared. And I knew that she is going to see that, okay, none of the dresses are going to fit her. But the amazing lady who was doing the program, she just came to her. She complimented her height in front of everyone. And with just a few little adjustments, my daughter was walking on the stage in a beautiful handbag uh, with other kids. And it was an amazing experience because instead of rejection, she met with including her in that program. So it was really an amazing experience as a mom, as, as a person who is learning about different cultures, because I've learned that we are different, but yet we are the same. And we are coming together when there is a need. And we really want to welcome everyone and help everyone. That's a great story and a great idea for uh, how to build a community. Bernadetta Korigish is uh, with the Niles Main District Library and taking part in coming together this time, as is Agnieszka Serafin. Agnieszka is a storyteller and poet and interpreter. Uh, nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us. I'm very glad to be here. Now, one of the interesting things about coming together is it lets the Polish community or whatever community really program the thing and, and drive the ship. Uh, what's it been like? Uh, that was incredible six months because you need to know to prepare program uh, that long, 10 weeks. You really need a lot of time and a lot of people involved in helping us. And I have to say we have wonderful Polish community who right away was very intrigued and very interested what actually coming together is about. I have to say that right now during this climate when we are building walls to separate people, neighbors, very often families, uh, we are very fortunate that Niles, Skokie, Lincolnwood and Morton Grove came up with coming together, festival that invites us, strangers, to this land, us immigrants, who came for many different reasons to raise family in safer place, to find a better job, to learn. And coming together allows us to finally have our voice heard. You want to hear about our stories. You want to hear about what we have to offer. Music, literature, art, theater, our history. And we are very, very happy that you want to listen to us and also invite everyone to those free programs spread over 10 weeks, where we will be able to present Poland. We celebrate Poland, we celebrate a regain of independence of Poland. Uh, last year, it was a centennial. And also this year, 2019, we are celebrating collapse of communism in 1989. 
Yeah, then Bernadette, you were pulling together some of the history for the organization? Yes, I did. Uh, So the part of coming together, we really want to educate people. We want people to understand why Polish people think like this, what shaped us. So the history is a big part. How much do you think people really know? Because Polish immigrants are pretty prominent here. But I don't know if people really dig down in the history in a way that's meaningful. You know what? I don't know if they're aware (laughs) about our history. And it's uh, there's an amazing YouTube video where you can watch it, I think, in five minutes, like how the borders of Poland were changing for the centuries, for the years. It is absolutely amazing. Not even like for 20 years, our borders stayed the same. It's a very short history, but it really highlights the biggest events. And especially that I don't believe like any other country disappeared like for 123 years from the map of the world. And that's what shapes us. It really does as immigrants. So we were spread all around the world and we're fighting for the freedom and regaining the independence. How is coming together getting started this year? You, you have an opening ceremony. You've got um, a pretty snazzy MC and some good ideas about how to welcome people. What's going to happen? So it's amazing event. And I really want to invite everyone. It's this Sunday, January 27th at 1 a.m., at Niles West High School in Skokie. So we're going to start with traditional Polish welcome. It's with bread and salt. You should see me when I was calling different bakeries, and I was like, what's the biggest bread you can bake? <laughs> and they're like, how big do you need it? I'm like, the I biggest. don't know, like six feet. <laughs> and the lady was like, it's not impossible, but let me ask the bakers when they come for the night shift if we are able to do something like that. But it's like three feet, so it's like pretty big. <laughs> so that's how we start. And the people who are going to welcome, they're in traditional historical costumes. Our MC is Alan Kraszewski. So he is ABC7 anchor, and he is very well known here in the Chicago area. We have um, opportunity for people to come and learn about history. We have three different panels displaying different aspects of our history. One is about Zamenhof, the creator of Esperanto. The other one is Women's of Independence, about the women's role in the fighting for freedom. And the third one that Agnieszka provided, and she had connections, is about the history of Poland. And then, of course, we have the dances, singing, choirs, beautiful, colorful performances. And it's coming together because... It's from the youngest to the oldest, like from the smallest kids to the tallest and the biggest on the stage. So this is really a great opportunity for everyone to be together. One of the cool things about coming together is the reading materials that you use. And you've got books that you're doing at different levels. And uh, there's an adult level. And you have the author come in and, and talk to people. Tell us about the book that's going on here. Actually, we have five books, books. and it is really amazing because it brings together the libraries in our uh, neighborhoods. All the libraries, like, work together, and we were trying to come up with the best books that pictured the role of the Polish immigrants and how does it shape um, their lives. And we have books available for everyone. So for adults, we have a book, The Best Polish Restaurant in Buffalo by William Kowalski, And I'm pleased to say that the author is going to be present at the book discussion on March 18th at 7 p.m. at the Niles Main District Library. This book is amazing because it talks about almost four generations of immigrants. It describes in a very vivid way 
the author's great grandmother, how she came to America on the ship. And it's like the struggle. It's really amazing. And even though the stories of the first generation and nowadays uh, generation of immigrants are a little bit different, but yet they are very the same. We have the book, The Weight of Water. It's for the um, middle schoolers. And this book is amazing. It's about the journey of 12 years old, Kashenka. She's coming with her mom uh, to England, and they're looking for the father. And this book is wrote in the free verse, and so the words are very important. And this is the book when I brought the book home. I asked my daughter, I was like, Camila, do you think this is the book appropriate for the kids? She sat down, she read it, she really liked it. I went back to work, I returned the book, and the next day she's like, Mom, do you still have this book? Because I really want to go back to that story. Ah, so the story is really amazing. Like Kashenka uh, like says about her mom that she uses her as a human dictionary because she takes her everywhere and she wants her to translate everything. And I think a lot of immigrants can really feel familiar with those experiences. And that, that was the weight of water. The weight of water, yes, yes. And for the little ones, we have a book that's written in Polish and English, and it's called Ignaś, Chłopiec z kolorową głową. So Ignaś, the boy with the colorful hat. And this is pretty much the story of a little boy who is very funny, very playful. He plays on the piano, and later on we find out that this is about Ignacy Paderewski. And the author ah. as well is coming to the Niles Main District Library on March 28th. So you've got two authors coming in and books appropriate to all ages. To all ages. That's what we want to stress about the coming together, that everyone can find something. For each age group, we have something to offer. We're talking about coming together, celebrating Polish culture. It starts on January 27th and runs into March. And I wanted to say something about one of the films that was playing. Ida is a film that won an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. And Cold War by the same director is running at the Music Box right now. And I understand that uh, there's a Chicago connection to the music in Cold War. What is it? I'm waiting. I think it starts tomorrow in Music Box, one of my favorite Chicago theaters. And the connection is that Grażyna Augustik, a famous Polish jazz singer who lives here in Chicago, she performs in our wonderful jazz clubs in Chicago. She's actually the one who sang the Two Hearts, Dwa Serduszka, the, the song from the movie here in Chicago in 1990s and I heard her performing this song. I fell in love immediately. Her interpretation is heartwarming. It's beautiful and right now in Cold War this famous Polish movie the same song is sung by, by uh, Joanna Kulik, the famous Polish actress performing oh, that's so in the cool. film. Yes, yes. And Ida is kind of a precursor in the trilogy that this man has been making and you guys are showing that and that's a really serious look at serious issues that were happening in post-World War II Poland. Yes, whenever we go somewhere, we move somewhere, we bring our traditions, we bring our customs, we bring love of our country and language. And that's what we will be trying to promote and share with people coming to coming together this year. We want everyone to feel welcomed, to feel included. And we actually want to create a sense of large family, and here in Chicago, the Polish community is humongous. It's huge. Yep. We came to Chicago actually in 1836. 
we brought our tradition, history and culture, but since then we have our bookstores, we have churches, we have different organizations, we have our Polish Museum, we have our festivals. One of them is uh, famous Taste of Polonia at Copernicus Centers happening always in September in the Niles Festival Polonaise. But I'm really glad that you brought uh, the, the song because Grażyna Augustik, the famous Polish singer, she has her own festival which promotes Friedrich Chopin and different interpretations of his music. And it, it will be happening during Coming Together in Chicago starting February 22nd, ending March 1st. Oh, that sounds terrific. And Chopin is the great composer from Warsaw and... Uh Where's his heart? Is his heart in Warsaw somewhere? Right now it is in Poland. It, is. it was a big celebration when we brought it back. That's terrific. I am so excited about coming together, and I'm so glad you're doing this. I imagine there's a lot of pride in this. And you mentioned the confusion in our country about immigration and immigrants. But how do you feel about where we're at? I mean, did you ever think you'd see the United States doing the things it's doing, being the place it is today? Um, like I mentioned before, for us... People who came to United States seeking freedom and democracy, what is happening right now, it's a little bit frightening because we feel like United States is taking a turn that really shouldn't happen. And even more, this festival coming together that is promoting this unity, the sense of cross-cultural and diverse appreciation of each other. I think it's very important for all of us to get to know each other uh, through our even food, through our language, through anything we want to share. Because I think it's coming to the idea that we are enriching each other through learning about our differences. We celebrate what we have in common. And uh, also here is Chris Renkosiak. He's head of marketing at the Lincolnwood Public Library. And you've been getting the word out about coming together. Uh, where can people get more information about this thing? Yes, thank you for having us. Our website is comingtogether.in. That's comingtogether.in. And that is the best place to see a complete list of all of the wonderful events, to learn more about the books, to be able to find the registration information for all those events, too, in one cohesive place. Uh, and we're also on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram uh, at the handle Coming Together Skokie. Um, and we're asking people to share their photos, share what they learned, and most importantly, to share their experience with this program over the duration of the next 10 weeks. So you can take it a little deeper with the social. Exactly, yes. Chris Renkosiak is head of marketing at the Lincolnwood Public Library. Thanks also to Agnieszka Serafin, and thanks also to Bernadette Koritesh, and she's a digital service assistant at the Niles Main Library. And Jim Shapaniak uh, represents the Coming Together program and is with Niles Township High School District 219. Thanks very much, all of you, for joining us, and good luck on coming together this next 10 weeks. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Us. And as Polish community, we always come with a small gift. Oh, good. That's how we are. <laughs> so I brought you something from Poland that I visited a few weeks ago. No. And this is a clay folk rooster, a whistle that used to wake up little children. Here. <laughs> well, Enjoy. I'll, I'll try to wake up some children with it. That is so nice of you. Thank you very much. On Thursday, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is setting its doomsday clock. And the clock does what it sounds like. It tells us how close scientists think humanity is to global catastrophe. 
As of last year, the clock is at two minutes to midnight, and that is the highest threat level since the beginning of the Cold War. We want to hear your thoughts this week. Did humanity move closer or farther from total destruction in 2019? Visit our Facebook or Twitter at WBEZ Worldview or visit wbez.org slash worldview and you can submit your speculation for a chance to be on the air with us sometime this week. And once again, the question is, did the threat level change in the last year? Are we closer or farther than t- from total destruction than last year? So check it out there on uh, WBEZ Worldview and Facebook or Twitter or wbez.org slash worldview. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll be talking about an exhibit that's coming to the Block Galleries at Northwestern, Caravans of Gold. It's an opportunity to see some phenomenal art from Africa. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.